This is Mako President Jerry Walker, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Doing great, Kevin. How are you? Doing very well and very happy to have as a special guest this week, Mako's Legal and Policy Counsel, Les Knapp. Les, how are you today? Doing well. Happy to be here, Kevin. Thanks for being here. So on today's episode of the podcast, we do have big news from the Kerwin Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. I promise we're not just setting you up. There is big news from that commission. We'll also talk about sports venues in Maryland and two issues that we think will be a big issue in the next session of the General Assembly. We'll talk about WOTUS, the waters of the United States, and the EPA's new proposed rules around WOTUS. And then we'll get into a survey that Michael and Les, I think, is a little disheartening about how much folks know about their state and local representatives. So, gentlemen, let's jump right into the Kerwin Commission. Obviously, we talk about this a lot, but we do have significant news. Well, we've been we've been foreshadowing this. It's sort of like been a week by week crawl for the podcast listeners that we've been talking about Kerwin and saying, well, okay, maybe it looks like at the next meeting we're going to have some more information and some more detail, and okay, maybe it won't be that September meeting. Maybe it'll be the October meeting, et cetera, et cetera. And to be fair, we thought that because that's what the commission was saying, right? I mean, right. We weren't, yeah. we weren't. Yeah, we weren't conjecturing on our own. Anyway, but I mean, so so here we are in the middle of December. They schedule a big two-day decision meeting, and we've been sort of anxious, saying, well, you know, some of these details are going to be tough to vote on. How do they discuss and vote and and decide these things, and what are they going to leave to the General Assembly? Uh, Yesterday, we saw a pretty dramatic turn. We did. So after about a day and a half of very interesting policy discussions and going through the recommendations, they were able to come to consensus on their their major recommendations policy-wise. Got an awful lot done. Yeah. They did. But yesterday at about 4 o'clock, a bomb dropped in the, in the commission. After two days, like almost full-day meetings on both Tuesday and Wednesday at 4 o'clock on the last day of the commission for the entire year, then suddenly – we have a letter to distribute. We have a letter that showed up from the president of the Senate, Mike Miller, and the Speaker of the House, Michael Bush. And essentially what this letter said was the commission will not have time to develop and review funding formulas in time for the 2019 session. So the presiding officers are asking the commission to continue its work into 2019 to appoint a subcommittee to sort of go over these funding formulas and then report back to the full commission And in the letter, it also said, look, even if you could come up with these funding formulas in time for the General Assembly session in January, it would be very difficult for the House and the Senate to not only go over and implement the policy recommendations, but also going through and trying to figure out state and local splits for funding and there are a lot of nuance to these funding formulas. Yeah, so so that's a that's a dramatic turn. And I, I mean, over the last what two three months, you and I have had a little back and forth on the podcast about well, where are they heading? And we've we were reluctant to go as far 
as as to call a year delay. Um, so they didn't go quite that far. I mean, the, I guess the read here is there are going to be a series of policy recommendations, and many of those can turn into legislation, I think. Right. So we, we're going to see pieces. Uh, they did talk about sort of a partial funding plan that could be introduced and passed for this year or looking forward. So, um, so there's pieces that are for this year. It's not, it's not that nothing's going to happen this year, but some of the monumental fiscal changes and formula changes, they're not ready. The legislature's not ready for them. So put it on pause, get it right, and we'll do it later. Many of the commissioners were pretty shocked and, oh, yeah. and dismayed by this letter. But as you mentioned, there will be $200 million that will essentially be the money that they set aside last year for the recommendations from the Kerwin Commission. And that $200 million is part of the windfall that the state received from federal tax reform. So that $200 million, it'll be parsed out amongst the various recommendations the commission wants to begin implementing. And then the commission will also ask for another $125 million, which is what is expected to come from the Education Trust Fund, the extra right. money. And they want that for special education. So, So what you've got will be... Essentially, these are requests to the governor to fund these things in the coming year's budget, right. in the FY twenty budget that'll be that'll be decided through this legislative session. Um, you know, in Maryland, only the governor can put money into the budget. The General Assembly can't do that uh, for operating funds. So, as a practical matter, that's what this turns into: uh, some funding requests for the current year. Uh, they want to do some set aside money to make room for next year. That's pretty ambitious. Right. But these are requests. I mean, the commission doesn't have the ability to start spending money. They can recommend a plan and hope that the governor supports that or that the General Assembly puts pieces of it into law to oblige the governor in the future to do it. Right. And remember, the governor does have his own proposal to spend that $125 million on school construction. So oh, we heard about that yesterday. We heard about that. So that, yeah, we definitely heard about that. So that'll make it interesting in next year's session. But essentially here, you could view this as sort of a down payment for the Kerwin Commission's recommendations. And and you did mention they want to set some money aside in 2021. It's $750 million. So it's no small, it's quite no, an no small feat, right? So, so, okay. So details um, right now on the Conduit Street blog, uh, Kevin, you have done uh, quite a lot of writing. I don't know if you were managed to get any sleep last mm. night putting all this stuff no, together. I don't sleep much anyway, so it's, good. it's fine. It's, it's yeah. a good thing. Yeah, That's fine. what we look for. Yeah, yeah. But um, so, so there's a good deal of information already on the blog site that tries to walk through this. Our plan for the podcast is we'll dig a little deeper at our next offering. We've got some things we want to talk through on environmental and land use issues for this week. Uh, Les has joined us to get through that. So let's put a pause, sort of like the General Assembly did. We'll put a pause on Kerwin, and we'll get back to it later. Sounds good to me. (laughs) Sounds good to me. I need a little break after the past two days. So we'll get into that in a uh, future episode. But there is more to come. There are some details to be ironed out, and, and we'll talk about that in the future. Okay, gentlemen, let's jump in to issue that we think is going to be quite a an issue in the next General Assembly session in 2019, and this has to do with professional sports stadiums. We're talking here about the Redskins Stadium and Pimlico Racetrack, and we saw, Michael and Les, that Governor Larry Hogan announced that his administration did sign an MOU 
with the Interior Department to gain control of Oxen Cove Park and Oxen Hill Farm, and the plan would be to build a new stadium there. This is in the same neck of the woods as the National Harbor, um, so it's you know, along the Potomac in Prince George's County. And, I mean, that, you know, the venue probably would make sense for a big facility and so forth. You've got some some degree of infrastructure there. It would probably take some work uh, going forth. I mean, this is a preliminary sort of thing. Right. right? We, nothing we, set in stone. Yeah. So we, we expect the location of a new stadium for the football team to be probably a competitive process. And you would imagine downtown DC will be interested and Northern Virginia will surely be interested in one or two or seven different locations. So you have to imagine those will be the contours of what lies ahead. I think the thing that's interesting for, you know, for, for the, the, the podcast listener who's listened to the Mako podcast is as a matter of Maryland politics, this raises questions about use of public funds on this kind of enterprise. And that, that can be tricky and controversial as sort of a policy debate. Right. So the governor did pledge not to use taxpayer money to construct the stadium, but the Redskins owner, Dan Snyder, is on the record saying taxpayers may pay for infrastructure. And that's what we're talking about here when we're saying the land, the area may need some work to make it available for that stadium. So we're talking about new roads, perhaps new infrastructure, but that's the controversial piece here. A lot of people think taxpayers should not fund any of the infrastructure or the actual stadium for professional sports teams. Unless that would probably include water and, and wastewater and, you know, environmental kind of stuff as well. I mean, we think of roads and parking lots as the obvious part of this, but I have to imagine there's other, other infrastructure that would be part of this kind of thing too, right? Absolutely. A stadium is just like any other type of development. It needs all of those services in order to work. Any venue where you've got that many people coming to it needs water, needs sewer, and certainly has a lot of environmental consequences as well. Yeah. Everybody comes to a stadium and flushes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so we do know that when the, the current Redskin Stadium FedEx Field was built uh, back in 1997, it opened. Taxpayers did put up about $70 million for land, sewer line, roads, etc., so that the Redskins could move to Landover from their old location in Washington, D.C. I mean, and that was that was an issue of no small consequence. There were actually two stadium projects happening at the same time, one in Baltimore and one around D.C. So that, I mean, that was a curious circumstance for one relatively small state to be looking at two big projects like that. And, you know, the politics of doing that are tricky and so forth. So, I, I mean, I just, I, I just think... We don't know the details, but we've seen this kind of thing show up as a policy issue. As I recall, there was legislation in last year to say, let's not do anything like this. Right, right, right. right. There was a bill that essentially asked D.C. and Virginia to join Maryland in a three-district compact to prevent the Redskins from receiving subsidies from any of those jurisdictions should they decide to build a stadium in either Maryland, D.C., or Virginia. Right. So so you you could see this debate go in multiple directions. And maybe this, maybe this um, reaches ahead this session, or maybe it's a year or two down the road. I don't know what the timetable is for a, a you know, new facility. The Redskins lease, the current lease ends in 2027, so yeah, a few years. I, that's not, I mean, that's not what we're talking They're not beholden we're to itchy. it. We're itchy. Right, They're right, itchy. Right. They want a new spot. Right. And, and they need a new happens. stadium. That's I mean, let's happens. be honest. So, if you've been to that stadium, they need a new one. So, I mean, yeah, be that as it may, they'll, 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 that'll be a debate, you know, unto itself, right? Yep. yep. 
But but as a practical matter, you end up with, well, what would be the source of any state funds? Do you want this to be taxpayer money or do you want it to be some other, you know, do you use it out of a side pod? Do you take funds from the lottery or something along those lines? That's sometimes is a mechanism to say, well, this wasn't taxpayer money. This was lottery money. Right. Then there's less lottery money in the general fund. So you have to use tax money for something else. Right. But So no matter but, what you, know, you do. Right. I mean, but but then also like you could have the, the, the flip. I mean – doesn't somebody stand up on the floor of the House of Delegates and say, "I want this, I want this language added to the budget bill to say the state won't won't spend one nickel on any road, bridge, infrastructure, environment, water pipe, sewer line, anything like that related to any kind of a yeah you know, any, anything related to this team or to this team until they change their name or you know something like that right that's that's not out of the question yeah you know we don't we didn't even talk about that yeah. and we know that's controversial enough that's so that's, in the background that's just too. another wrinkle to throw in this whole conversation sure. so i mean so that itself would would loom as an interesting policy issue potentially for this session almost certainly for this term uh, but then also just last week, uh, we heard a wrinkle, uh, a, a, a group that had been taking a look at options lying ahead for Pimlico Racetrack in Baltimore, home of the Preakness, not insignificantly, um, suddenly suggesting let's raise the place, take a year off, and then come back with a new palatial surroundings for 21st century horse racing in downtown Baltimore and, and all the trimmings that would go with it with a pretty hefty price tag. Yeah, so the Maryland Stadium Authority announced a a proposal to spend millions and millions of dollars. We're talking about $424 million on a multi-use racetrack and entertainment destination, which would replace the the current Pimlico racetrack. And I guess the idea here would be not only would this be a racetrack, but this would also uplift the community, preserve the huge economic infusion that the Preakness brings to Baltimore and the surrounding areas. So it's an ambitious plan. But again, this is the same issue that we're talking about with the proposed Redskins Stadium, wherever that may fall. There will be folks who will stand up on the floor, as you said, and said, I want this in the budget that we will not spend one dime on Pimlico or a potential sports stadium. And Pimlico, Michael, I think it's a little more near and dear to Marylanders' hearts, maybe. I mean, they can't move that race unless the General Assembly allows them to do it, at least within the state of Maryland. Yeah, the, the Preakness has a special identity. And I think that that transcends Marylanders' fondness for horse racing and for horse breeding. So, I mean, that's very much very much in the culture of the state. You've got particularly a lot of breeders here in the state who, who see the horse racing industry as a backbone to sort of a way of life and culture here. I mean, there's a reason why a football team that used to be here was called the Colts, right? right I mean, it's right. not, not a coincidence. So, I mean, the, the, and the Preakness being, you know, it's the middle jewel of the Triple Crown. This is the most visible and high-profile part of American thoroughbred racing. So, I mean, that's a really big deal. I, I think there's a different resonance with Marylanders and the Preakness than there would be for a football team that's named for another jurisdiction in all candor, even if they have, even if they play their game in Maryland, they identify themselves as from the district and they right. practice in Virginia. Right. So, or their training camp. Right, yeah. Virginia. And then a lot of people say that's, that ends up being where the true economic impact, that's the residence for most of the players right. and so forth. And anyway, I mean, there are nuts and bolts issues, but some of them are going to be emotional. I mean, imagine 
being one of the representatives in the area right around Pimlico and seeing, I mean, this could be the thing that, that anchors an enormous renaissance in that part of Baltimore. Absolutely. I mean, I mean the roadways, yeah. civic infrastructure would all benefit from the upgrade. Right. And it's not just the racetrack, it's just the surrounding community. Right. And and you, I mean if you do this sort of thing and that kind of investment happens, how whatever whatever sort of public funds, private partnerships or whatever vehicle it would take to get from here to there, if you do something like this big ambitious plan and you have a new palace that shows up in Pimlico, you would end up with, you know, restaurants and hotels and other things that would happen in and around there. Um, that could make an enormous difference for that part of a city that, you know, hasn't had something like this, you know, come along, you know, in, in quite some time. So that's a big debate. Um, if you're Baltimore, if you're a, a true believer in this part of Maryland's culture and so forth, it's got a big price tag. It raises similar issues about public investment in these sort of enterprises and so forth. But, you know, the, the state has, I mean, the state has more direct ownership in horse racing and so forth. There's, you know, there's pieces that come back and support a lot of things on the public side here, more so than a private enterprise like football. Yeah. And I think, you know, the difference too, is that this would revitalize and redefine an entire city section. We know we have National Harbor. There's been, you know, large investment there. So I think this would be a little bit different in that regard. But this would also be the nation's first truly 21st century racetrack, horse track. And right now, Michael, there are only 12 race days at Pimlico. I had to check that earlier. So the same folks who own Pimlico own the the track in Laurel. They're putting a lot of money into that track. So they may come back and say, hey, we're not going to spend money in Laurel and Pimlico. So we got to work something out. So more to come, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, the decision-making structure for horse racing is uh, extremely convoluted and beyond what we want to get into on this podcast. You don't know anything about horses, do you, Michael? That's that's not my thing. That's not your thing. If I were a gambling kind of person, I might know more. Let's just, let's just say that's tricky and we'll put a pin in that as something to keep an eye on for this session and beyond. So we'll get into that in a future episode. Most likely that'll be an issue that we're watching closely, but for now we'll leave it there. We'll go ahead and take a break. When we come back after the break, we'll talk about the waters of the United States. We'll also get into a recent survey from Johns Hopkins. That is very, very disappointing. And if you believe (laughs) that your constituents should know their local and state representatives, all that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson and Les Knapp. Les, let's get into Waters of the United States. It's a weird, weird name, and I, I'm not sure, Michael, unless it, it finds exactly what it means, but what is Waters of the United States, Les, and what is going on now that has brought it back into the spotlight? What is different? What are the different proposals from the EPA, and why do counties care? So Waters of the U.S. is actually something very important to local governments. And what Waters of the United States, or WOTUS for short, is, is it's the definition that is set for when a waterway qualifies for falling under the Federal Clean Water Act. 
Uh, and when that waterway is then subject to that act's protections, permitting requirements, it puts a lot of restrictions and, and on that for what you can go in and do. Counties traditionally have, have run into that issue when they're trying to do stream restoration projects where a stream falls under the waters of the U.S. definition and they have to wait six, eight, ten months or more to get permission from EPA or the Army Corps of Engineers to even do that restoration project. So this is this is sort of a question of how far is the reach of the federal government on waterway protections? And it's a little bit like on a police show. You know, sometimes the feds come in and they say, no, 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 we have jurisdiction here. Get out of the way, you dumb little local cops. Kind of the same thing. The waters of the U.S. is the definition for the things that EPA rules sort of guide over. Correct. So, Les, what happened in 2015? There was a big change in 2015, and let's talk about that, and then we'll talk about what the EPA is proposing today under a different administration. So, the longstanding version of the waters of the U.S. definition was was largely done in around 1986. And traditionally, it's what you view as navigable waters. Can you put a boat or ship on it? Then it's the waters of the U.S. That includes tributaries. Now, the definition has over time had some issues and concerns and some inconsistencies. And in 2015, the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers uh, proposed a new definition, which would arguably try to address some of these, uh, some of the vagueness and inconsistencies in that definition. How do you handle wetlands? How do you handle uh, waterways that might have intermittent flows that flow sometimes, or even ephemeral flows, which is maybe once in a great a year or two years, you suddenly have a lot of water going through this channel. Think of a desert gully and and that rare desert rainstorm. Um, so, so not just not just going further upstream than a boat, but in 2015, the proposal was saying the EPA has reach even into places that generally almost never run into into the streams and tributaries and back into the major waterways, but even further up. I mean, we had been we had been hearing things about drainage ditches and stuff of that nature, right? Yes, as part of that, the the. Language that was proposed was very broad and would include, um, on on just reading a straight read of it, uh, roadside ditches, uh, stormwater drainage systems, uh, irrigation systems, and farm fields. All of that could potentially have come under the waters of the U.S., and that did cause a lot of concern. So the National Association of Counties is actually opposed to the 2015 WOTUS definition, and I think MAKO had submitted comments expressing concern and asking the EPA to clarify its language and that it would not apply to county-owned ditches and stormwater drainage channels, but less did they do that? Did they, did they make that clear in their definition? So, no, they did not. Um, We had verbal assurances from various EPA officials up to public comments made by the Region 3 administrator that it was not their intent that this new language apply to county uh, drainage ditches or stormwater facilities. However, and very telling, they refused to make any changes to the definition to exclude, narrowly exclude those facilities. Even though you got verbal you know, assurances from them, they refused to put it in writing. That is correct. And that's pretty telling. So, so, the, so the change from 15 was troubling to farmers, to some local governments, and a, a variety of stakeholders who were 
were sort of saying, wait, you know, these are laws that were written for the big rivers and the big estuaries and so forth. And now suddenly I've got to tend to this stuff in my, you know, my stormwater pond. And I mean, like that's, that's the kind of question people were asking. Um, I mean, it's, it's not so much, uh, I mean, I'm against clean water. It was a matter of these regulations don't seem to make much sense because, you know, it's once in a hundred years does this body of water connect to anything. Right. That's correct. I mean, it came down to, do I need to go and get a federal permit to do simply clean out one of my drainage ditches? And, and I mean, right. you know, the average layperson would say that sounds ridiculous. And and all of us in this room, I think, would say that sounds ridiculous. That's obviously an overreach, and that's not the intention of the, the WOTUS. But if they refuse to put it in writing, obviously it's concerning to us, and it was concerning to the National Association of Counties. So then as I recall, like the implementation of this rule got all gummed up in the courts, right? There were a bunch of different fights about what to do with it. Yes. So basically – when you had the election and a new administration came in, uh, they put the rule on hold, and there were numerous court challenges, um, and, and ultimately the rule was suspended in about half of the states, and, and a court federal court ruling held that the, the 2015 rule could take effect in the other half of the states, roughly. Uh, so it was that, yeah. all confusing. Right. It's not the best way to get things set up, to have different districts of the federal courts holding different opinions and so forth. But So we were in a weird limbo for a while. Now the EPA has spoken with a new idea, and they're trying to sort of reset some of this stuff, right? Yes. The EPA has now proposed a, a new rule, a uh, new definition of waters of the U.S. that would try to clarify this. Uh, basically, the rule broadly does bring in uh, and clarify what is under the waters of the U.S. in terms of bringing in certain wetlands, uh, bringing in uh, other adjacent waterways. That's beyond the 1986 version of the definition. So it's definitely going farther than than the EPA's reach had been before 2015. Correct. Right. But what it does specifically exclude, and I think from a, a, a narrow county perspective, it does specifically exclude uh, almost 99.9% of, of ditches, uh, stormwater control features, or wastewater recycling structures. So mm. you don't have to worry that your uh, uh, settling pools are suddenly viewed as the waters of the U.S. and subject to federal oversight. So this new proposal, obviously, it sounds like we're getting those clarifications, but folks on the other side of this are obviously going to say it doesn't go far enough. Have you heard concerns from environmental groups who believe this should go further? There are a number of environmental groups that have put out public statements stating that this is a significant walk back, that you're losing hundreds of thousands of acres of protection. They're looking at that from the 2015 rule, which arguably could cover almost everything. But this this is going to be a, a big fight that will be fought out. There's both politics and policy involved here. I think the takeaway for county governments is our facilities are explicitly excluded under the new rule which I think from Mako's perspective, as it should be. So that's happening now. Is there a way for anyone to submit comments to the EPA? 
you know, for this proposal, is there a way to be heard by the EPA? Yes. Uh, there's there's detailed instructions, and, and you can go to the Conduit Street blog. There's a full article on this, which includes how to submit uh, comments directly to the EPA. Once this new definition is published in the Federal Register, which has not occurred yet, uh, there will be the standard 60-day reporting period where they will take public comments that you can submit electronically is the easiest way to do it. There will be an informational webcast on this issue that anybody, any county official can take part in on January 10th, 2019. And if you have some money and want to travel to Kansas City, they're actually going to have a public listening session in Kansas City on January 23rd. Remote pod. It's no Guam, but yeah, I'll take it. we can it. talk to them. Maybe we'll yeah, I like Waters it. of the U.S. and Guam. There you well, go. I like it. I like it. Okay, so that's where we stand now. Sounds like there are a few details to be worked out here, but it seems like the EPA is moving forward. They'll hear comments, but that's where things are now, and we'll have to see exactly what happens. But Les, it sounds like the exclusions that we've been asking for since 2015 – are included, so that's a good thing for county governments. Yeah, and and the, the National Association of Counties has been a lead player on this, not by no means the only player, because um, I think you know there's agricultural interests and other other folks who have been stakeholders here. But I think I think they've done an effective job raising what are in the grand scheme some relatively narrow issues, and they may have been definitional, whether they were you know over you know whether it was just a poor wording or or lack of perfect clarity i guess we'll never know but you know trying to hone in on the specific issues for local governments we've gotten some traction there i think that's helpful there's a bigger debate here obviously and that'll be a partisan federal debate largely so you know we'll we'll see if anything happens there but having the having the proposal from the federal agency reflect the things are narrow issues we're trying to raise that's where you want to be when congress has trouble you know sorting out agreement on much of anything very, very much true. We've seen that before, and I, I suspect we'll continue to see that moving forward. So certainly a good thing for, for us to be in a, good, in a good spot there. Okay, I want to get into now a, a survey, a study from Johns Hopkins that, while maybe not surprising, it's still disheartening to me. This is a study of what residents know about the workings of state government. And there are some troubling statistics on here, Michael and Les. And Les, I know that you posted this article on the Conduit Street blog. It, it got picked up a lot on social media, a lot of people sharing it. So maybe we'll raise awareness in that way. But I find it very interesting that 33% could not name the governor. One third of people can't name the governor. Is that surprising to the both of you? I, I, I feel like... I feel like the lower you get in the food chain of politics, the more depressing stats like this become. Yeah, so 33% of the governor, 20% couldn't name their state legislator. So I, that's just really Only 20% Only 20. could name. So right. 80% of people, when you say, who's your state senator, who are your state delegates, actually, like, what are the offices held by the people who are in the state legislature representing you? Probably nobody knows that I either. can understand that more than, than yeah, the but, but how? I mean, how frustrating is is that that you know that basically four out of five people are just like I don't know, man. I have no idea. Less more than fifty percent <laughs> did not know if their state had a constitution. I mean that 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 sounds crazy to me. That that one in particular struck me that every civics class you should know how your state operates, and and every state has a constitution basically that sets out how it, it should be run. Um, 
and and that's just shocking to me. Um, this whole study was was very interesting in that you would think, as Michael said, as you get closer and closer to where the rubber meets the road and you dig down to the local levels, people should know their officials more. But uh, this this survey kind of put the lie to that, at least at the state level. So I guess the good news here is most respondents felt that their state was doing a good job and they, they liked their governor, despite the fact that one third didn't know who the governor exactly. was. Exactly. Right. But also 70 percent think their state government does a better job than the federal government. And I, I suppose that's because nobody likes the federal government right now. Right. I mean, it, it's it, <laughs> it's sort of it's sort of like if you if you rank the favorability of different professions like members of Congress tends to be down there with like patent trolls and and like drug dealers and and, you know, like the worst of the worst. So for, for some reason, Americans have this general consensus that almost all Americans have an unfavorable opinion of the Congress and they tend to overwhelmingly reelect their own representative to Congress. So my rep is great, but as a group, they're terrible. That seems to be every, the the overwhelming consensus. I mean, it's an unusual election if ten percent of Congress turns over. Now, so. <laughs> now, I, I guess part of the reason why people don't know very much about their state government is because there's not much media coverage, and and more of the coverage is focused on Washington. Obviously, we're trying here on this podcast to increase media coverage in Maryland. I do think Maryland does a very good job uh, with state government coverage. There are multiple outlets that cover state politics year round and do a really good job. But we'll the, say it's not what it once was. Really? Yeah. No. I mean, sadly, that's that is sadly. Sad. That I mean, is sad. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we do know the media is focused on Washington and there's always stuff going on all day long. There are talking heads just, you know, this is why people don't like Congress. And there's so much controversy there. But what can states do less or Michael to to maybe increase the focus to let people know that it's actually states who run law enforcement and education, two of the most important Issues that I guarantee you, if you asked people on the survey, they would say those are two of the most important items. I think it comes down to two key issues. One being that the state government has to figure out the media channels that will actually reach people. And then second, um, have a message that people will actually look at and understand. Right. Um, and that, that is in today's media uh, challenge. As Michael said, you look at what the state press pool used to be with, with the number of reporters who would come down for the General Assembly and cover it. Um, it's a fraction of what it used to be even a decade ago. And I mean, Michael, do you think that's because more reporters are being you know, sent to Washington to cover federal politics or just newspapers are dying maybe? Or I mean, we've seen more blogs pop up, right, though. So right. you have reporters coming from those sites. Yeah, I, I think it's it's all of the above. Right. So inf- information is transforming sort of year by year or, you know, less than that. So, OK, that's probably inevitable. And in the information age the hierarchy of what's worth printing or what's worth distributing or what gets clicks and eyeballs and so forth. It just moves in the, in certain directions. And we, as consumers, we, we used to say we vote with our feet. Now we, we, we vote with our clicks, right? That's true. So, I mean, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, there's not all that much in the business of state and local government that is really sexy and pulse pounding and fantastic. I find that offensive. But. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of do too. But, but, the, but the reality is people want to know, is North Korea going to blow us up? Are we going to, you know, I mean, are, are, are we going to shut down the federal government? 
Um, did you know? Did some elected official do something today that I'm going to have trouble sleeping about tonight? And all, virtually all of that is happening at the top of the food chain. So people people want to know what's going on with the president. People want to go want to know what's going on with the Congress. They want to know about the federal government. They want to know about Social Security and the federal deficit and those sorts of things. You know, the idea of, well, the state government has a structural deficit, but we solve that every year. Not interesting. Yeah. So, <laughs> so sidebar here, my mom is an AP government teacher. Shout out to my mom. She's a teacher of the year in Maryland mm-hmm. a few years back. I'm going to give her a heart attack when I show her this no, survey tonight. Yeah, yeah, tell her to skip this she, episode. She will we, be we just that. absolutely we, devastated. We don't we, we don't want bad things to happen to her. We feel no, very, very she's a great teacher. I guarantee you her students were not involved in this survey. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> she's a great teacher. So, But this is, you know, overall disheartening, but again, not surprising. Okay, so what we need are more listeners to the Conduit Street podcast and the people who are doing this kind of stuff. Because I mean, I mean, I, I mean that mostly facetiously, and we always end with a "Hey, give us a like, sure. and give us a favorite, and give us a rating, and all that kind of stuff." And I mean that, but on a second level, it's this sort of thing that maybe has to occupy what used to be a civics section. That's right in your daily newspaper. So that's fine. Find it where you can, but you know, get a friend to listen to this podcast or listen to something else that's coming out from their, their hometown focuses on their neighborhood. If you live up by Pimlico, follow the follow the neighborhoods around there and so forth. I bet you they're talking about stuff and there's things going on there. There's a community meeting, there's a podcast, there's a newsletter, find the information because that's, that's the missing link there. Les, what do you think? You agree with Michael there? Any other thoughts on how we can, we can help to turn this around? I agree with everything Michael just said, and I think it's incumbent on local governments <clears throat> to be more proactive in how they get uh, their messages and their information out to uh, their residents because it is about education and getting them engaged. And it's it's a multi-pronged approach now, just putting out a press release and expecting that to be picked up by the media, traditional media outlets and people seeing it, reading it. That doesn't happen anymore. Right. So using social media, which, you know, counties in Maryland do a great job. I mean, if you go in and you look at counties on social media, they're constantly updating their feeds. So Definitely progress on that end, but hopefully we can we can turn this around. So now, Kevin, I know there's a rule of thumb sort of in journalism that if in your article you mention like a few trivia questions and things, you have to like by the end of the article explain things. So um, for our listeners, we have a constitution. We have a two-chamber legislature. Our governor is Lawrence Hogan. So just in case you, you needed to know that, we're going to tuck those things away. We, you know, good start. Spoilers. Good start. We're giving you some, we're giving you some of the one, answers one, here. One brick so. at a time. Yeah, well, you, you're, you got a good start. So that's and, good. And, and the things you love is probably being delivered by a county. This is where the rubber meets the mode, let's be honest. I mean, the federal government has an impact, but the rubber meets the road in local governments. All right. On that note, that'll do it for this episode. Any final comments, gentlemen, on anything we've discussed today? Anything you're looking forward to besides what's going to happen next with the Kerwin Commission? 67 degrees and balmy in Guam today. Wow. Wow. You know, is that, is that like, do you have that saved on your weather app? So <laughs> yes, it's like exactly. Annapolis and yeah, then Guam. Annapolis, then, yeah, exactly. I love it. What, I love it. You? I mean, <laughs> yes, yes. I'm going to after we're finished here today. I'm looking forward to uh, having a, a full Christmas dinner and lots of Christmas drink uh, and just have one night and 
take off. All right. Take off your belt. Stretch out a little bit. Yes. I like it. Stretch those pants out. Uh, on that note, we do wish all of our listeners very happy holidays. We will be back again. We have a lot to discuss as we head into session. As Michael already alluded to, if you do enjoy this podcast, please tell a friend. Give us a like. Let's turn this survey from Johns Hopkins around. Next year, I want to see like 75%. Big numbers. Big, Big, numbers. Numbers. Big numbers. Turn that frown upside down. That's right. That's right. All right. Until next time, Michael, Les, and Kevin signing off. Happy holidays, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you.